When my kids were little, I used to tell them these crazy stories. We called them Rudy stories. There was uh, basically a key character. There was a, a town they lived in. Rudy had several friends, and then he had some arch enemies, and I would just concoct various stories with all these characters in them. And I, I won't be sharing any of those today because it would probably make some of the moms gasp. But um, there were there were fun stories. But as the kids grew older, just, just a year or two ago, I think it was, we were together, and one of my kids, as they were reminiscing on these Rudy stories I used to tell, said, it'd be interesting to know what mental image each of us had in our minds as dad was telling these stories to us. And I thought that's, that's an interesting thing to think about because if I were to tell you a story today, I have words at my disposal, you would probably in your mind have an image of what the character looked like or the characters look like or the scene that they're in or the town that they're in. I could tell you all the same story, but you would have a, a different mental image of what was actually perhaps taking place. You might get the same point from it, but you would imagine it differently. Well, in the word of God, we don't have pictures. We just have words. And in the passage we're going to look at today, it's extremely descriptive. We have an extended description of the temple that Solomon built. And artists, if you, if you were to go online and look at various artists' depictions of what the temple looks like, they're all, they're all different. Because each person that reads this is going to have a different mental image based upon the words we read here as to what the temple looked like. There's going to be some general similarities, but we're going to have a different mental image. And that's fine. But where we want to all leave united is in the impression we will get from these depictions of the temple. And when we look at this temple, what we want to do is we want to leave with this mutual, corporate, renewed belief that the God that we worship is worthy of our worship. We may have a different mental image of the temple, but we all want to together leave here thinking, man, our God is awesome. Our God is majestic. Our God is beautiful. And this is the purpose, I believe, of this passage to remind us of the holiness and the distinctiveness of God, and to allow our hearts to be stirred and to be convicted if we have perhaps treated God too trivially and reminded of how marvelous and awesome he is because the God that we worship is so, so worthy of our worship. So join me in 1 Kings chapter 6, and the first heading I would like to present to you is pertains to God's majesty. So we want to talk here about the majesty of God that is displayed uh, in the temple. In verse 1, the Bible says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which in our calendar would be like April, May-ish, so in the spring, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So you'll notice that while it is not particularly large in terms of its footprint, proportionally, it's extremely high. It's a tall building, and there's a reason, reason for that. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, 
equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house. So running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. So you might have in your mind then this image that the walls were somehow slanted out so that the floors became increasingly spacious. But probably what he's describing here is the fact that the lower wall for the first floor would have been much thicker to hold the floor above it. Then you have a slightly thinner wall on the second floor and an even thinner wall on the third floor. So you're getting more square footage as you as you go up in these chambers that surround the temple. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. We're going to read the whole chapter, but let me pause and and draw some uh, observations and some lessons from what we've read so far. So what we're told is that Solomon was commissioned by God to build the temple. The tabernacle had been in use for about four centuries by now, the temporary portable temple, if you will, called the tabernacle. And now Solomon is going to build, after hundreds and hundreds of years of God's redemptive work with Israel, a permanent temple that was fit and suitable for his name. And this takes place uh, in and around five or sorry, 967 to 966 BC. So pretty much 3,000 years ago is what we're looking at here. 3,000 years ago, they began to work on this temple. And while it was not big, it was beautiful. Beyond belief almost. The outer dimensions were 60 by 20 cubits. Now a cubit if you think of your forearm, uh, all of us have different lengths of forearms, but a cubit depending on how it's measured, roughly is between 17 and 19 inches. So we'll just say a foot and a half. And the outer footprint of this temple, minus the buildings around it, there's all sorts of additions and naves and foyers and whatnot, would have been about 2,700 square feet. So if you subtract the, the thickness of the walls, again, you're looking at maybe... 13, 14, 1500 square feet, something like that. Not a particularly large building, but definitely a building that was very, very tall. Why, why did they build the building so tall when it was you know, relatively modest in terms of its, its footprint? Well, we know throughout the scriptures that while God is omnipresent, so God is everywhere, God manifests himself in space and time, in burning bushes, in fiery furnaces, in lion's den, in a manger in Bethlehem. God manifests himself in space and time. And at the same time, God is also often presented as being in an elevated position. So he's with us. He's among us. Christ is called our friend. Christ is called our brother. But he's also our king. And generally, when you think of a king, you think of a king on on an elevated platform or on a throne. You may have had the opportunity to walk into very, very old cathedrals, maybe in in Quebec or in Europe, and they're often exceedingly tall compared to the width or the length of the buildings. And that's deliberate. 
Because it's meant to draw the worshiper up and to remind you how small you are. The taller the building, the smaller you are. The more you look up, the more you think, wow, that's, that's grand. That's majestic. So that the architecture of the temple is meant to accentuate the majesty and the grandeur of God. And then we have se- several rooms being built around the perimeter of the temple in successive level, levels supported from below. And everything that was made was made with superior building materials. Nothing was cheap. Nothing was chintzy. Everything was built to the nines with expensive superior building materials. There was a vestibule. There's an inner sanctuary. There's an an ornate roof that's described here. And that is because the design and the money and the work that they put into this temple was intended to be the house of God where sacrifices would be made and worship would be conducted to the glory and honor of his name. Now, the location that the temple was built is also important historically. If you thumb over to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, which gives some more details that are not included in uh, 1 Kings, we're told that in Jerusalem, this is 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So this location had at one point been used to thresh wheat, to separate the, the outer husk of a kernel of wheat from the grain itself. But there was also something else significant about this spot. This was the place where Abraham came within a hair's breadth of offering up Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And at the last minute, God stopped him and God provided a ram caught in the thicket to be a substitute for the sins of the people. And Isaac there, in keeping with many of the patriarchs, serves as a bit of a foreshadowing to Christ. And of course, the ram as a foreshadowing to Christ. Christ is called the Lamb of God. So there was, there was atonement made in this location in the past by the patriarch of the very nation that was now building a temple there. So there's lots of symbolism that this was a place where atonement would be made. And so in this place, as the temple was constructed, sin would be atoned for in the temple, in the holy place, and outside in the courts, for the people so that they could remain in right standing with God. So lots of beauty, lots of detail, lots of money. I mentioned to you last Sunday that some, someone took it, took it upon themselves to try to guesstimate the approximate cost of the temple in current dollars. And they figured the cost of the temple and its surrounding complex would have come in somewhere probably around $300 billion. Think, why didn't they just give the money to the, to the poor? Well, God's got lots of money for the poor. But it's also appropriate for us to give our absolute best to God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, every nugget and every gold mine, every cedar tree, every cypress tree, every rock, every stone, 
And he asked that the people would rightly honor him by building this magnificent temple. And yet, and yet, when you get to the New Testament, one of the most shocking aspects of Christian theology is this idea. That for all of its beauty, for all of the atonement that would take place there, the beauty of the temple and the atonement that would take place there would pale in comparison to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In atoning for the sins of his church, in atoning for your sins, in Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that it was by the means of his own blood that God now dwells with his people directly through the greater and more perfect tent. One of the things you probably have heard many times in church, if you're a churched person, is that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We hear that. Okay, that's great. It's part of our theology. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. Yes, God dwells in us. But if you think about God for a moment and how great he is, it's really a shocking aspect of our Christian theology. Have you ever gone out at night and maybe laid down on the lawn and just looked up at the stars or sat on a dock at some northern lake and just looked up at the stars or been on a hike or flown over a vast wilderness in an airplane and looked around and realized, man, this world is a big place and it's a beautiful place. Then I look up at the stars and there's countless stars. In fact, scientists still have no capacity to even measure the universe. It, it seems almost infinite. Stars and planets so far away from us. And when you look up at the universe and you realize the distance between stars and constellations and even solar systems and galaxies, it's like, wow, are we ever small? We're just like little flecks of dust on a little fleck of dust in this vast universe. And yet God is greater than all of that. That same God that created the universe condescended into space and time down onto planet earth and permitted himself to have all of his blood shed as the final propitiation for our sins, as the once for all sacrifice, as the final lamb died at the hands of cruel man for our sins. And now that God indwells this? Really? God indwells this little guy? He indwells you? It's really a humbling and astonishing concept that the God of the universe indwells flesh. And yet that is not intended to diminish your self-esteem, but rather it is intended to humble you so that you understand your truest mission and identity and live your life for his honor and glory with a vertical upward focus on his magnificence and to then to live out your calling as his representative here on planet earth. Now, again, while this is teaching that we are much accustomed to, it doesn't always necessarily translate into worship and life transformation. And it needs to, it needs to, we need to purify ourselves 
as everything at the temple was presented pure and unblemished, we need to purify ourselves as God's temple so that we would not profane the work of God through his new covenant temple, which is his church. And if the temple of the old covenant, which pales in comparison to the work of Christ, deserved $300 billion of effort, then how much more does God deserve every calorie, every moment of your life to be lived in honor and exaltation of his great name? So we are reminded here and introduced to the absolute majesty of God through this piece of architecture. Now we're going to come back to that because near the end of the chapter, I think the writer is accentuating this point again. But before we do that, there's a couple other things we need to to see here. The second one is respect or reverence. The respect for God is displayed in the temple here. Reverence for God is displayed in the temple. Look at how Solomon committed himself to revering God, even in the process of construction. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. It would have been far easier to build it on site. Those of you that have any construction experience, you know, the best way to build is to bring the raw materials to the site. If the two by four is too long, you cut some off. If it's too short, you get another one out of the pile. If the brick doesn't fit, you cut it in half. If the beam is too long, you cut it off. If it's too short, you get a new one or you weld a piece to it. It's much easier. It's much more efficient to have your raw materials on site and to put them together and to make the adjustments that you need as your building goes up. But Solomon did not build the temple with a view to convenience. He wanted to demonstrate even in the construction planning, even in the execution of it, that God needs to be revered. And so while in biblical worship, there are shouts of hallelujah, there's hand clapping, hand clapping and dancing. There, there are visible, visible expressions and there is noise. Solomon didn't want any chaotic noise to be heard on the temple grounds. And so everything was made to size off-site and then brought into place. There would be no chaotic noise at the location where God would be worshipped by his people for generations to come. This is not a proof text for silent worship. But it is a text that reminds us that when we worship God, we must worship him thoughtfully reverently, not chaotically, not whimsically, not without planning, not without forethought. Solomon wanted to show respect for God. And so he chose to ensure that the site would not be littered up with unnecessary banging and noising and noises and clanging for the glory and honor of God. Well, I think one of the principles maybe for the Christian church to consider and reclaim is the need for us to worship God reverentially as well. We have it so easy. You just show up, you come in, you sit down, and people do most of the work for you. That's the mindset that most people have. But the question is, are you reverential in your worship? 
Are you respectful? Are you prepared in your worship? Far too much of the modern worship life of the church involves people coming to church and in the presence of God as the word of God is being preached. As God's presence descends upon his people, as we're singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs about his grandeur and worth, people are playing on their phones or sleeping during service because they stayed up too late watching a movie or showing up habitually week after week late for church. And we have people that are in the middle of a a song crying out to God. And because such and such is late, they tap them on the soldier, sh- shoulder. You got to step out of the aisle. and be, Now you're distracted from worship because people can't get out of bed and get to church on time. How is that honoring God? How is that revering him? How is that showing that you want to give your absolute best to God? These we, don't, we obviously don't have a policy book on exactly how you need to act and what you need to do and how you need to dress when you come to church. And we're not going to come up with one. But in principle, ask yourself this question. Do you give God your best in worship? Do you prepare yourself for it? Do you go to bed early enough on, on Saturday night so that you are not too tired to worship on Sunday? Do you make an effort to set your alarm and show up on time and then to actually engage and read and prepare and listen and lean in? In in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, here's what Solomon would later write. This is also one of Solomon's works. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they, that they are doing evil. You can go through all the motions and do the right thing. But if, you're, if you don't approach God reverently, respectfully, something's off in your worship. So there's maybe some conviction here for each of us to consider in terms of how we approach God. And these same principles that apply corporately apply privately to our worship of God. Verse 8. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house. And one went up by the stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So we have this visual depiction. You enter the temple and you're successively going up higher and higher until you get into the innermost sanctuary. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high. And it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Why, again, do we have this architectural detail of stairs? Like, why not ramps? Why not keep it at one level so it's more accessible? Why? Why the stairs? That's that's a lot of extra work. It's a lot of extra money designing the stairs. Because the temple, again, is to remind the listener and the reader and the worshiper of the elevated stature of God. It reminds me, in fact, many of the things of this temple narrative remind me of Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah, who's a pretty righteous man, has this vision of the majesty and holiness of God. 
and the cherubim have their wings spread out and then they're covering their faces. And he's blown away by the holiness of God in Isaiah 6. And he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And the angel comes and touches his lips with a coal as if to purify it. Well, in that narrative, in that vision, I should say, it's, Isaiah writes, and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Again, more biblical insight into how we should view God in a high, exalted, lifted up place. We also should exalt and elevate God in every area of our lives. Yes, he is with us. He's brother, he's friend, but he's also king. One of our pillars as a church, as we call them, is unashamed adoration. And in that, we say we want to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. It's a way of expressing that biblical concept of elevating God in, in our lives. Do you elevate God in your life? Is God in a, a lofty place in your soul, in your mind, in your heart? The third thing that we learn about from this passage is the blessing of God that comes through obedience. Verse 11 reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if, so this introduces a condition, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. Who, who does God have in mind when he says, if you? Who is the you? Is it the pagan nations? Is it those outside of covenant? No. It's the covenant people that God has in mind here. Those that are already in covenantal relationship with him, by grace, by the way. That's the only way into covenant with God, by grace. But there's a condition. If you're in covenant with God, you will act and live in a certain way. You will be obedient. You will follow his statutes, his rules, his commandments, as the text tells us. And God will then establish his word with us. So obedience is a necessary aspect of God's covenant people. And it is still a requirement for God's covenant people today. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. The fruit of the spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. If you are part of God's covenant people, your life will be lived differently. This weird theology that some have even in the church today. Well, I've trusted in God. I've been saved so I can live however I want is heresy. It's heresy. That's not how the Bible presents it at all. We're not saved by our works, but works necessarily and inevitably follow regeneration, necessarily and inevitably. And now that our spirits and wills have been freed by God's grace, we participate with God in our sanctification. We hear, we choose to obey. God then enables 
We hear, we choose to obey. God then enables. He enables through the presence of his spirit. He he enables through the work of his church. His His word does not return void. So if we want to participate fully in God's covenantal promises, it's not just about going to the temple, going through the motions, offering the sacrifices. In fact, Samuel, a generation earlier, prophet of God, said this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, which was part of the sacrificial system to take the fat and offer it to God as a burnt offering. There was a great emphasis on getting the sacrifices right, getting the outward expression right. But then Samuel steps in and he makes this correction. Lest you think that the externals is all God is concerned about. Let's talk about the internals. Let's talk about your personal obedience. That's really, really important to God. So when we encounter God's grace, brothers and sisters, let's say on a Sunday, let's say we come and we worship and we're moved and our hearts are transformed and our minds are reoriented. Well, that's a green light, not for rebellion on Monday, but for continued obedience on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. See, true public worship necessarily leads to personal obedience. True public worship necessarily leads to personal obedience. And God blesses that and God is pleased with that obedience. Now, I mentioned to you we're going to return to this theme of the majesty of God displayed in the temple and in verses 14 and following, that's really what's being drawn out. We now have even more details of the carvings and the the figurines and the fixtures and the materials that were used in the temple. And all of this, all of this is to remind us of how beautiful God is and how much he is worth. So listen to these descriptions of ornate woodwork and Endless, copious amounts of gold being installed inside of the temple. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. Now, maybe you've been to Home Depot or Lowe's and you walk in and they have these nice cedar planks and they're planed and sanded down and they have the tongue on one side and the groove on the other and you can just cut them to length and install them and they in your sauna. I know all of you have saunas and you just kind of smell them and it smells delicious. But but this isn't kind of how it worked. Like they had to go cut these trees down and dry them and saw them by hand and smooth and finish them with hand tools 3,000 years ago. So these boards would have been worth much more in terms of man hours than anything you'd pick up at a big box store today. Think of the amount of work. Every time a piece of lumber is mentioned, a stone is mentioned, That's a lot of work. That's a lot of money for this material. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary, 
he prepared in the innermost parts of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. So a, a perfect cube. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid a, an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. It's like, how much gold does this guy have? Well, he had a lot of gold, a lot of gold. Historians believe that one of Solomon's mines may have been discovered about 30 or 40 years ago in modern day Saudi Arabia. It must have been within relatively close geographical distance to, to Jerusalem. And we know that Solomon lived at peace and he had all sorts of commercial ties and trading relationships with other kings of the ancient uh, Near Eastern world. And he brings that gold out of his treasury and he literally makes wallpaper out of it and flooring out of it and ceilings out of it and chains out of it. And this guy just had so much gold. Some people estimate that up to half of the world's global gold supply at that time was in Solomon's possession. He just had more gold than you can possibly imagine. And he takes this beautiful material and he doesn't keep it for himself. He puts it in the temple to God. He then chooses cedar for the walls, which is a very long lasting material, almost impervious to rot, can last for centuries in the right conditions. It was often used to build boats. He chooses pure gold. He doesn't mix it with alloy. It's pure gold, meaning it will never rust and it will never tarnish. It'll never lose its luster. And he uses that on the temple walls. And think about this. This is like 3,000 years ago, and this guy had gold wallpaper. I mean, I, I've been in some pretty fancy buildings around the world, but nothing like this. Nothing this ornate. Maybe someone takes some gold-colored paint and paints a piece of furniture with it. But there's literally hammered gold everywhere on the inside of this temple. And all of it is because Solomon believed Yahweh God was worth it. Yahweh God was worth it. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. You know that God has created ministering spirits. He's created human beings a little lower than the angels, but he's also created heavenly beings. And when heavenly beings are sent out to deliver a message to, other, to human beings, to minister on God's behalf. We often call them angels. That comes from a Greek word, angelos, which means messenger. So when heavenly beings serve as God's messengers, they're often called angels in scripture. But this word cherubim is a word that is generally reserved for heavenly beings that are serving in the throne room of God. We see this language in Isaiah chapter six to refer back to that passage again. And cherubim are those then there, heavenly angels that are literally dedicating themselves to the ceaseless worship and praise of the king. And here then we have two, two such carvings of cherubim in the singular cherub. And listen to how they are described. This is very similar 
to the winged beings of Isaiah 6. The inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. So these are gigantic. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measurement and the same form. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits. So was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. These heavenly beings depicted in these olive wood and gold figurines are serving in the text to give us a sense of the throne room of God, the heavenly presence of God on earth who dwells in the heavenly places, but who condescends and manifests himself in space, in time, in creation on this little tiny planet, the little pipsqueak pieces of dust like you and me. Upon seeing them, the worshiper is meant to be reminded of the absolute power of God who has manifested himself in our lives and the holiness that he is due. This is how these depictions are to serve. Allow them to serve that way in your own soul this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses, or 2 Chronicles rather, chapter 2 verses 5 to 6 lest we think that somehow God can be contained in a beautiful house. Here's what we also are reminded of. This is Solomon speaking. He put 300 billion-ish dollars into this house, but he still knows that even it is insignificant and inadequate to house the grandeur of the thrice holy God. He says there, the house that I am to build will be great. For our God is greater than all gods. Verse 6. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heavens, cannot contain him. What a beautiful reminder that our God is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. He is everywhere. And while we're thankful that he manifests his presence in small men like me and small men and women like you and on small on the small little planet of ours we're grateful that he manifests himself that he dwells in his people let us never diminish him down to our level but let's always ensure that in our mind and in our worship life he is beyond belief he is beyond measure he is infinite and glorious. There's also a note, a message in here, especially if you cross-reference 1 Kings to 2 Chronicles, that all sorts of people participated in the worship of God. You know, sometimes we have this weird view that the most important people in the kingdom of God are missionaries or preachers or bishops or clergy or whatnot. But actually, 
When it came to the temple, Solomon had to rely on skilled workers, on hands-on people who had the skills and the ability to create beautiful tapestries, to shape bricks and blocks out of stone, to mine and purify and hammer sheets of gold to carve flowers and palm trees and overlay them with gold. A reminder that all people, both the intellectuals and the hands-on and everyone in between, can bring honor and glory to God as they use their gifts and talents and skills to exalt him. We can exalt him with our mouths, but we can exalt him also by working as unto the Lord with our hands, by creating things that will point people to him, that will remind people of his beauty and grandeur. Praise God for artists whose creativity pales in comparison, doesn't even come close to God's creativity. But praise God for artists who can take blank canvases and paint beautiful scenery of creation that draws you in and reminds you of the grandeur of God. Praise God for sculptures that can take something which is created and shape it and carve it into something that reminds us of detail and intricacy in the created order. Hands-on people have a place in the kingdom of God and, and bringing him much honor and much glory. Look at the work that they participated in. All around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Someone had the skills to be able to do that. In the inner and outer rooms, the floor of the house, he overlaid with gold. In the inner and outer rooms, for the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel, the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. He overlaid them again with gold, just gold, gold, and more gold. And spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square. The two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. And guess what he overlaid them with? Gold, evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of stone cut and one course of cedar beams. It's like, this is exhausting just reading this. It's, it's hard to believe that people put that much energy into worship, isn't it? You put that much energy and effort into worship. Even the thickness of the gold was uniform, we're told. It wasn't all bumpy and lumpy. It was pounded out flat and smooth and applied evenly over the intricacies of a flower, its petals, its stem. Everything was done to perfection. Now in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, meaning the spring. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bool, which would have been in October, November, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Now, I don't want to over-preach the text and, and be dogmatic about the number seven here, but it does strike me 
that the number seven is often used in reference to perfection in the scriptures. And here it takes seven years to build the house. And even if that's not the intention of the word seven here, the broader narrative does demonstrate a temple that was built that from a human perspective neared perfection. It was absolutely gorgeous. Now, again, you might have a little bit of a different visual picture in your mind as I've described this to you, what that looks like. But what we should all have in our hearts and in our heads right now is an overwhelming sense of the majesty of God and how small we are in comparison with him and perhaps a renewed appetite to give him our absolute best. You know, after seven years, billions of dollars, tens of thousands of man hours, they ended up with the temple. And it would serve for generations to come for God to be honored. The question is, how much of your life have you given to God? How much? How much have you given to God? He is just as holy today as he was 3,000 years ago. He is just as present today as he was 3,000 years ago, but now he also indwells us. He is just as worthy of our worship today as he was 3,000 years ago. Perhaps each of us needs to take a moment to take stock of our lives and to ask if we've given him our first fruits, our reverence, our awe, in the way that Solomon did. And if we haven't, to make the necessary corrections to align our lives with our true purpose. To offer, as the Bible tells us in Romans 12, our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Because this is our act of worship. May you worship God then with your all, with your whole being, because he is so worthy of it. Let's pray to that end. Thank you.